This is Gordon Vernick with Jazz Insights. Today I'm in the studio with a very dear friend and an amazing musician, Joey DeFrancesco, who's probably the foremost jazz organist today walking the planet, possibly in our solar system. Joey, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm an organ player. I play the trumpet, too, and I've been playing for a long time. I just turned 43 last week, April 10th. And I started when I was four, so I've been playing like 39 years. Like uh, you, you, you told that story um, to us yesterday. It's really, um, it's a phenomenal story. It's really amazing. Can you just uh, give us a shortened version of that when you first started playing and when your father realized that you had some talent? Sure, sure. Well, I was watching my cartoons. I was four. I hadn't started kindergarten or anything yet. And they had a, you know, one of those 1-800-Fats Domino's <laughs> Greatest Hits. I didn't know who Fats Domino was, but I knew what I heard when I heard that intro to Blueberry Hill. It just took me out. So I was a little kid. I called the 800 number and ordered the record, you know. I didn't realize you had to pay for it, whatever. <laughs> he came to the door, and it was $12.88 the UPS man wanted. And my dad was home, and he's like, I didn't order anything. I said, I, and I, I remember what it was. I said, I did, I did. What's in here? I said, it's a, a record, some song, Blueberry Hill. And he went, Fats Domino. I said, I think it is. So anyway, he got it. I guess he thought that was pretty hip, you know. <laughs> Four-year-old ordering yeah. a telephone. <laughs> Found my thrill on Blueberry Hill, on Blueberry Hill. When I found you, and that was where it started because I had a little toy piano at home. Because my my father is a, is an organist and he played like mostly locally in the Philadelphia tri-state, you know. Jersey, Philly, Delaware, that area, right? So he had a little hiatus from gigs, so the organ came home, and that was the first time I actually had to, got to see a Hammond organ because I heard it on those records, Jimmy Smith and things like that. So it was in the summertime, the organ came home, and I was just totally fascinated with it, and I started really loving listening to the sermon by Jimmy Smith. So I started learning it a little bit every day. And after a few days, couple weeks, I learned the whole thing, all the bass lines. The you're about four years old. I was four years old. And I waited for my dad to come home. And, I, you know, I saw him coming up the steps and the door. And I went into it. And uh, I remember he looked at the record player first, you know. <laughs> Nothing playing. It was me. And I had I had a sermon down, you know. Wow, that's, 
that's really amazing. So you could just barely reach the top of the keyboard, you, just, you know, just up Yeah, there. I, I mean, I didn't, I was so little. I mean, I played everything on one keyboard, you know. And then from that, my, I guess my, my, my father and my mother realized, wow, he really loves this and has some kind of an ability here. So they nurtured that, you know. So how, how about your, your first professional gig? How, how old were you when you, you actually got paid to play? Eight. Eight. <laughs> Yeah, my my dad, he was gigging, you know, he was gigging a lot, so he would take me to sit in with him. And when I would do that, a lot of people, well, can your son come play at this or do that? Or So it would be like a little, they'd get a gig, and then I was getting like maybe 10 bucks or $20. For me, that was like a buy a lot of bubble gum with that, you know? <laughs> Coming up in Philly, it was especially, uh, I caught the tail end of where a lot of these guys were still around, a lot of the legendary players. So I got to see and hear a lot of them, and I started to play with them uh, at an early age. There was a club, and uh, there was f quite a few clubs in Philly, and there was one called Gertz Lounge. It was an organ room. Don Patterson was the house organist at the time, so we would go down there and see him. And I went down, and I started going there when I was around 9 or 10 years old, and I sat in, and, and the rhythm, the band was, was Philly Joe Jones and Hank Mobley, <laughs> you know. And all kinds of, you know, Sonny Stitt would come in, and all, all kinds of guys would play. I started sitting in, and I, I started to get a little name, you know, the little kid come in and play. I knew about 10 or 15 tunes, you know. So Don Patterson was living in Philly, and then he went to Chicago for a while. So they asked me, because it was the summer, uh -huh. can you at least play? Because I couldn't, during school, I couldn't, you, you know. couldn't drop out of school at 8 right. years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, at this time I was 10. This time I was 10. So I, they, uh, I started playing with those guys. I didn't realize. I mean, I knew kind of knew who they were. I mean, but see, the records that we had mostly had organ records, right? Mm -hmm. So Jimmy Smith, Groove Holmes. So I got into them. We had a few Miles records, but I was really attracted to the organ. So I didn't really realize who Philly Joe and Hank Mobley were. So I guess that's why I wasn't scared to death. And they were so sweet to me, right? One time I played with Sonny Stitt and Hank Mobley together, you know, because they, <laughs> they would come and play and they'd sit in. And then I realized I realized who they were after when we started. I started understanding, getting more records and seeing things, and I was like, "Wow!" wow. It's because you know, Sonny and, and Gene Ammons did all those great records. With who were some of the organ players that they played with? Don Patterson was okay. one of the main ones. So you're you know? developing a reputation at 10 years old as someone who not only is a novelty, but you were actually playing. You could you could hold your own. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I think about it, it's hard to talk. You know, you try to talk about it from a non-boastful or egotist because I can't even figure out how I was doing that, honestly. At that age, when I, you know, I'm older now and I know how hard all this <laughs> stuff is. I understand now. And I don't know how I was doing that. I mean, especially playing in Oregon where you're playing bass lines and changes and, you know, and I was playing changes and soloing and I had the vocabulary and to play over changes and stuff. And I don't even really know how... I learned that, I guess, from listening to all the records, yeah. and it kind of naturally, you know, because when you're young, I think I attribute it to being, having some talent, some natural ability, mm -hmm. but being young and having a clear mind. You don't have a mortgage, you don't have cars, uh -huh. you don't have any, you don't have kids, you don't have, you know, so all you have is that, and playing the organ was like my favorite toy, so it was easy. Well, how did it affect your, your years in high school? You went to like a music and arts high school? Yeah. First, I went to a, a school called Settlement Music School. It was just a music school that was associated with Curtis, you know, the mm -hmm. Curtis Music School. Yes, absolutely. And so it was for kids, and or any age, really. And I went, and they had a, a small jazz group there of youth, you know, young kids. 
Everybody was older than me, though, at least by five or six years. But they had that. And then when I went to high school, ninth grade was a, a creative and performing arts high school. You know, Christian McBride, for mm -hmm. example, we were classmates. We were really good buddies. We had a big band in there that sounded like the Basie band. You know, it was, it was amazing. You know. So, so as, as you were in high school, you're, you're playing gigs professionally in town. How did that work out with, you know, with your family life and in school and everything? You were able to balance all these things? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the school was great. You know, the, the principal of the school was so smart. Should have went to class a little more, <laughs> probably. But he always made sure we were where we should be. He was really responsible, Dr. Venoni. You know, we played gigs at night. For a special event, I mean, the school used us for everything, uh -huh. you know, because we were like you, you the music ambassadors. We really were, you know. So any events they had, it was we played, you know, and uh, we did that kind of stuff. And then on the weekends, I had my own group where I was gigging, you know, like in clubs in Philly, the main, the main clubs in Philly. Wow. So you're in high school and you're playing gigs, but I know something happened to you when you were about 16 or 17. You had a an opportunity to work with someone who was uh, a legendary person. Can you kind of just tell us that story. Yeah, so I did a uh, talk show in Philadelphia. Uh, again, it was the you know the kids from the school. They brought on this show, and because they they wanted some music for the show that day, you know, like a band to come in and out of the commercials, because they were going to have Miles Davis on for on this morning show for an interview. And you know, we all heard Miles Davis stories. We thought he wasn't going to come. Come on, Miles is going to come nine o'clock in the morning to Philly for. A, you know, a television interview? Well, sure enough, he did. And we had to play. Somebody got the bright idea of bringing four young trumpet players to play for Miles and then ask him, what do you think? You know, you don't do that. Somebody didn't understand. So we were the rhythm. Miles Davis. <laughs> yeah, man. So they bring out the first little trumpet player. I think he was 12 years old. And he was sounding like a 12-year-old trumpet player. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like... And, they, and he played Green Dolphin Street. And, you know... His nickname is Little Miles. I mean, it was like, you know, Miles, what you, first talk show host says, Miles, what do you think? How did he sound? Miles says, he knows how he sounds. He needs to practice. <laughs> you know, and like, you shouldn't have asked that, you know. So the guy figured that out right away. So the other guys play, whatever. The last guy that played was actually a great trumpet player, John Swana. But he, I think at the time, maybe John was 20. So he played. John was the only one gracious enough. He played opera va, right? He played blues. He had me play one chorus, one chorus up front. This is my lucky chorus. Because I out of that one chorus I played, after that, they were asking Miles questions, and Miles stopped, every, interrupted everything and said, what's your organ player's name? What's your organ player's name? And the guy, uh, the organ, Joey DeFranco. I didn't even hear that. <laughs> I'm like worried that he's going to just destroy me on live television in my hometown, you know? Later after the show, he came up to me and he punched me in the chest and he said, you can play, you know, <laughs> give me your number, send me a tape. Okay, send him a tape. So I sent him a tape and I didn't hear nothing, you know? So I'm like, okay, well, maybe whatever. So anyway, it's summertime and I was out playing, whatever, hanging out with my friends and I come home and my grandmother has this little piece of paper, and she says, uh, somebody called, man called here named Miles Davis. She really didn't know who that was, you know? It was old Cecilia Lee. Yes. I said, yeah, okay, McBride. I'm thinking of Christian McBride because we used to, you know, do stuff like that to each other. But, you know, it's a 212 number. Hmm, okay. So I dial it, and Miles used to answer the phone like, what? And that's what he'd say, what? 
and I hung up immediately the first time because I feel uh, this has got to be him. So I did this two or three times, kept hanging up on him. So the next time he goes, who the F is this? <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Davis. Yeah. I said, this is uh, Joey DeFrancesco. Hey, baby, what's happening? You know, what are you doing? Can you come to New York right now? I said, well, I don't know about right now. It was about 6 o'clock in the evening. I didn't know what to, how to get to New York. I didn't know, you know. What about tomorrow? I just said, yeah. I figured out. I knew. Okay, so I called my dad up at work. I said, Dad, Miles Davis called. And was, ah, everybody was going crazy, you know. We had some friends of the family that, that had a limo service. They actually limoed <laughs> me up to New York, man. It was pretty cool. So I get to New York, and I go to Miles' place, and he's come on. I remember his his unit was 1115, the number, and I'm walking towards the door. He opens the door before, and he was couldn't have been more warm to me and really cool, and I played for him. He had me play at a Fender Rhodes in his, and I started playing Stella by Starlight, and he started playing it with me, and that was it. And he asked me to join the band. And so I played with him for like six months. I actually quit, and I, I regret that to this day. I was forced to quit because I had that first record already done. Yeah. So Columbia had all these promotional tours. This is, you know, in 1989. And this is when, like, you know, record companies were still a very important. They still are important, but now with all the downloads and all the free things and all the... Mm -hmm. stuff just now digital technology it's yeah changed it's it's field. it's hurt that a lot for records for record sales but at that time you know they put a lot of money in promotion and, and they touring. were yeah so i had to make this decision and you know i talked to miles about it and he was really sad about me you know having to leave the band so was i but i did but the cool thing was up until his death we hung out all the time So, so when you travel, um, obviously you don't travel with an organ, so you're really at the mercy of a, of a club or a, a venue um, for what kind of instrument you're going to play. I guess all pianists or keyboard players are, are like that, but I know that organ's got to be pretty difficult. I mean, is it you, you, you specify exactly what you need, or you just sometimes you just don't know what you're going to be playing on? Well, there's, there's different situations. There's a, an organ that I, I, a small organ that I like a lot. It's called a Nord C2, uh, C2D. Actually sounds great. And I can travel with that. You know, you can pay a few hundred dollars and have overweight. I could check it mm -hmm. as luggage. So that's so great. So it looks like a, a big electric keyboard? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. this is an organ, pedals. So in three cases, the organ, the pedals, and the stand. And they're all small enough to, to check as luggage. So when I can, I do that. At one time, I brought all my own gear because I used to I used to own a huge RV, and we used to tour like that, and I loved doing that. It just got to be not cost effective. So, of the of the old, older generation, do you still um, have contact with some of the guys who were around in the '60s? Lonnie Smith, Doctor Lonnie Smith, as they call him, is really the only one left of of that group of guys. I mean, they're all gone. But I was lucky; I knew them all. I knew them all personally and on a friend friendly level and they were all really cool but like jimmy smith's gone jimmy mcgriff groove holmes don patterson shirley scott Trudy pitts john pat they're gone so it's important 
that we have a lot of interest and, and keep it going. And, you know, the guys that are playing it now, some of them nobody knows. But there's a kid in Chicago named uh, Pete Benson that just plays great. There's another guy uh, that's in New York, Brian. I can't remember his last name. There's a bunch of them. So they're they're keeping the, tor- the torch alive. Keeping yeah, the and alive. I know them all like by their first names, and I can't. Pat Bianchi is I know his whole name. I, I, he started playing a lot of time, and he was influenced by me. But there's yeah, you got to keep it going. And the two guys we heard here yesterday. Yeah, Dave Ellington and Matt Kaminsky. Thank um, you. The, they're wonderful uh, musicians here. Wonderful players, great musicians, good organ. You know, playing the organ is not an easy task, as I re- realize now. You hear a lot of guys that want to play it, and they can't quite, it's not there. And those guys are playing great, so it's nice to see that. Another thing I'd like to talk about is is the, the future of the organ, the, where, where the music might be going uh, on the B3. Yeah, I mean, I play in a traditional Jimmy Smith style, but I still, my soloing and my harmonic approach has really evolved. And when I'm in these situations, I play a little bit more traditional but I have I'm starting to add some other keyboards some other sounds you know I'm writing a lot of music too so and there are some guys that are doing going a completely different direction but completely different maybe with music and stuff but still it all comes out of that same you know the bass line left mm-hmm. hand foot accent I mean that's the standard you might be able to do other things harmonically or maybe some different genres and things but it's gonna stretch it's stretching further and further but you know there's that tradition thing that's coming back so see what happens well pe- people still like the feeling um, when the music swings there's yeah. something you it's, a, it's an intangible you can't you can't describe it you can't put it down in words but there's a certain feeling that that you get from the music that is um, makes you want to come back for more either to, as a listener or as a performer mm-hmm. that, that's that's the strongest thing so that's not going to leave your playing it can't you know I, I hope that would never to me, if that's not there, then there's no point. And, and I always have tried to get the organ out of that all it is is a shuffle and a blues instrument. You know, everybody wants that's. I mean, that's the most popular stuff when it comes to the organ. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I think that maybe I have had a little bit of an innovation and change with that the instrument can be played as a very hardcore jazz instrument, which it was, but people still didn't realize that. So I just keep pushing that element of it. Even though that was happening, it never gets acknowledged. Any history thing about jazz, they never acknowledge the organ. They acknowledge the organ as a soul jazz instrument. There's guys that were playing heavy bebop on the organ. Don Patterson, Jimmy's early stuff, Live at Small's Paradise and things like that. He was doing things harmonically that Train was doing five and six years later. But that stuff never gets talked about. talking about you know expanding the horizons of the instrument from you know beyond the traditions that are always associated with it you would say what maybe larry young had a lot to do with just pushing it into the more modern modal era yeah i mean that's 
people say that. I mean, and that's true. He was definitely pushing forward and changing the style a little bit. But you know, if you if you're a real advocate of Jimmy Smith and you really if you really dig deep into his catalog and stuff that he was doing, he was kind of doing that before. He just got locked in on that thing back that made him a huge shit. star. He was, you know, Jimmy was like a pop star back then. He was playing like Madison Square Garden and places like that, you know, in the 60s where Miles was playing the Vanguard still. So it was like the first Kenny G or something, except, you know, it's a little different, mm-hmm. but he was a mainstream crossover. Yeah. It's a more popular popular Yeah, music. and then Mojo, he did that where he sang I Got My Mojo Work, yeah. which they did for fun. And sold five million records. That was huge. So when you got to record with him, that was towards the end of his career. Well, yeah. I mean, no, we didn't know that. He we recorded in August, and he died in February. Okay. The record came out two, three days before he passed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And how was it working with him in a situation like that? It was great. It was great. You know, for a year. I mean, I met Jimmy the first time when I was seven years old. We stayed in contact over the years. I always talked to him, and you know, him, his wife Lola who was his manager, you know, we had a a decent relationship. And then when I came on the scene strong with my first record and everything, it got a little strange there for a minute. And not really with him, but kind of like I think his wife was being a little protective uh, of him, which she didn't need to do because he was Jimmy Smith no matter what. So there was a little wall up there at one point. But then... That started to loosen up, and in 1999, we did a record, a live record together. Mm-hmm. It was the first one. And then when we did that last one, that was great, and we had such fun. He moved to Phoenix, and his uh, Lola had passed away, his wife, and he was out there alone, so I was kind of with him all the time, making sure he was cool, taking cooking for him, and, you know, and Jimmy, he was my man, you know, so we got to be really close, and we made that record, and mm-hmm. very cool. We're here talking with Joey DeFrancesco, one of the great jazz organists. Um, has, has had an amazing career, and he's still actively making music. And you got what do you see for the next uh, forty-three years? Okay, keep going, keep pushing. See what I could get into next. Mm-hmm. I got so many ideas. I mean, every time it's time to record a, a record or do a project, it's, it's really hard to focus and, and you know do something. I could have every tune something completely different, but <laughs> try to keep with the story. So to lock in what I'm going to do. It's always difficult. i got so many ideas, you know. Now, do you write a lot of your own material? Are you doing uh, covers of uh, standards? Or how do you go about picking material for um, for records? I do both, you know. Uh, I still love standards. I mean, they're, they're the greatest, you know. But And I write tunes sometimes that are, that are in that vein. And I also have some other little bit more harmonically uh, challenging things that I, that I like to do. So it's a combination of both. Well, this has been really great having you here in the studio and have you at Georgia State, Joey, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to work together again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Gordon.
This has been Jazz Insights with Dr. Gordon Vernick. You can visit me on the web at gordonvernick.com and facebook.com slash jazzinsights. Jazz Insights is a production of WMLB AM 1690, the voice of the arts in Atlanta. Thank you.